chapter 20. And if you don't have a Bible, just, thanks Steve, just raise your hand. Our ushers are coming now. We have plenty of extra Bibles for those of you who are visiting. I didn't grow up going to a church where we read from the Bible, so that was like, what just happened? People are reading from the Bible, but this very Gospel of John that we're going to read from this morning, I remember coming to this Bible teaching church for the first time, and they gave me a Gospel of John. I took it home, and I started reading it, and I was so gripped by it. I'm like, where have I been all my life? And it completely changed my life, and that's why I do what I do now. That's why I want to share with you how precious Jesus has become to me, and it's all because one day someone invited me to read the Bible, and we want to encourage you to do the same thing. So feel free to keep this Bible if you're not in the habit of reading it. And I recognize that for some of you, you're like, okay, even if I read it, it's just a book, it's just written by men. So how do I know if it's the truth? How do I know if it's the word of God? Well, the one thing I want you to at least do is make an informed decision. If you're gonna choose to say, I don't believe the Bible, at least make that choice because you've read it. There are so many people I meet, they go, oh, the Bible's full of, you know, contradictions. I go, well, give me one. Well, they haven't read it. So I hope this morning that you will at least read with an open mind and say, you know, I want to see what this Bible has to say. The story of the New Testament is a story of Christ coming to this earth, dying on a cross, and not like anybody hasn't heard this, but Christ is risen. He's risen from the dead. Now, when Jesus rose from the dead, the Bible tells us that for the next 40 days, he continued to appear to the disciples in various different places, locations, times, crowds, individuals. And the Bible says in the book of Acts, the reason he did that, it was with many convincing proofs. He wanted them to be so certain that he really was risen from the dead because there's all kinds of implications. If Jesus is risen from the dead, that's life-changing. So if you were to read all of the accounts in the New Testament, you would find that there are 10 different stories of Jesus appearing. Now these aren't the only 10 that he appeared. These are the 10 that God chose to allow us to have in the Bible. So sometimes it was to an individual, sometimes it was to, one time it was to 500 people at one time. But one of the things that seems to be a pattern is that when Jesus revealed himself to someone after the resurrection, they usually were in a state of disturbance, like either they were really scared, really sad, really anxious, really doubting. And then when they would see Jesus, they often wouldn't recognize him or sort of be like, wait, I don't, who is this? But once they became certain that it was him and that he was risen, their whole mood changed. Their fears, their anxieties, their doubts were lifted, and they rejoiced. And I hope that that'll be the case this morning as, as we look at this story in the Gospel of John chapter 20. So I'd like you to pray with me, and then we'll, we'll read it together. Father, thank you for the Bible. Thank you that we don't have to come to church, and what are we going to talk about that we can read from the Scriptures? this ancient book that claims to be the word of God. And Lord, as we read these stories about Christ, may hearts and lives be changed, just as you changed my life and many other lives here this morning. May all of us continue to receive the word of God and grow, and may Jesus be very real to us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Look with me in verse one. It says, now on the first day of the week, which would be Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark, and she saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. Now, 
We know from the other Gospels that Mary Magdalene was a troubled woman. She had demons. She was demon-possessed. People probably would have thought she was mentally unstable, but she was demon-possessed. But when she met Christ, he healed her, he forgave her, and she became a devout follower. And so, from the other Gospels, we learn that other women also came, but John chooses to focus on Mary. So she comes, and and the stone's not there. And verse 2 says, So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, that's probably John who wrote this. Now, at first you go, did he just say that? Did he just say, I'm the one Jesus loved? Does that bring back some bad emotions for you? Remember when mom and dad asked you to pass out the invitations to your brother's surprise party? And you were like, that doesn't feel right. We're twins, right? <laughs> Jesus doesn't have favorites, okay? So, so I can tell you this. If, if, if you are a believer, you're a disciple whom Jesus loves. And he doesn't love you when your game is on. That's the, that's the fascinating reality of the New Testament is Jesus loves us in spite of us. And don't ever wonder if he loves you based on your circumstance. If he loves me, why does my mom have cancer? If he loves me, why do my parents get divorced? If he loves me, why is my life so hard? Here's how you can know he loves you. Just think about the cross. Somebody once said this way. I asked Jesus, how much do you love me? And he stretched out his hand. The New Testament says, herein is love. God demonstrated his love for us that Christ died for us. So, the disciple whom Jesus loved said to them, they, she says, verse 2, they took the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they put him. Now, in the other Gospels, it says the men didn't believe these women. They're like, get out of here, that's nonsense. But apparently, as they thought about it, Peter and John decided, well, you know what? Let's go take a look. Peter, therefore, went forth and the other disciple, and they were going to the tomb. And the two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter. And you go, did he just say that? You know, I mean, I know men are insecure, but did he just say, oh, by the way, I, not bragging, but I outran Peter? Like, why did John include this, that he outran Peter? After all, Peter was older than him. And so some, some people have found a deeper meaning that, that the idea here is that we should zealously run after Christ and we should, we should, we should help those who are lagging behind, and I'm going, I don't know, maybe, maybe John just, he's just saying, right? <laughs> Verse 5, stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Now, first of all, you stop me, go, why would he stoop down? Because we've all seen pictures of the empty tomb. It's this big, round, open door. Well, archaeologists have discovered a lot of stone tombs back then, and, and they frequently didn't have a big, round opening. First of all, think about how much work that would be to to chisel out of a rock a big round open door. So, so many of the graves were just about a yard high, the ones that were carved out of rock. They were only about a yard high, but then once you got down inside, they were bigger. And so she's stooping down, she's looking in there. Now, a couple things to note. These tombs, to have a stone tomb, were very expensive, okay? We've all driven by a graveyard and you see gravestone, 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 and then you see this massive marble edifice, the mausoleums, right? That, that some very, usually as a very wealthy person, donates, you know, well, we want to really specially. So, so this particular tomb was very expensive, a stone tomb. In fact, the book of Isaiah predicted he'd be buried in a rich man's grave. And the guy who, who gave up his tomb was named Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph had this tomb 
but he had become a follower of Christ, so he's like, I don't care, give it to Jesus, because he loved him. I heard one preacher say this, he says, I don't know what the big deal was, he just loaned him his tomb for the weekend. (laughs) So, Simon Peter came following him, he entered the tomb, and he beheld the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth which had been on his head. Remember, all scripture is inspired of God. Why did the Holy Spirit see fit to go? I want you to know a couple things about about the the garments, right? So first of all, robbing graves was not uncommon back then. In fact, one of the emperors in the 50s AD had, had put out a law that grave robbery was punishable by death. So it wasn't, some, it wasn't like stealing a pack of candy from, from the five and ten. To, to rob a grave was a very, very criminal act. And one, one would imagine that if someone came to rob the grave, even if it was just to look for treasure or to take the body, that they wouldn't take the time to unwrap them, right? That they would get in and get out. And so the fact that the, the, the grave clothes are still there is a significant witness, like something, something strange happened. He came right out of the grave clothes. And then the word face cloth there. We've all probably heard the story, if you've ever heard about the Shroud of Turin, that people claim that this very face cloth is still in existence and that it has the impression of Jesus' face on it. Well, frankly, I don't think that's all that significant. Does it matter whether, whether we have a face cloth with Jesus' impression? Would you not believe if you didn't have that? In fact, moms love this verse because it says it was all rolled up neatly. You know, see, even Jesus made his bed. You know, it's like, no, I don't think that's the point here. Jesus wasn't making his bed. But I think John's just trying to say, look, there was evidence. Now, verse 8, then entered in there for the other disciple who had first come to the tomb. Now, here's an interesting phrase. He saw and believed, right? At this point, he did not believe that Jesus rose from the dead. But he saw and and then he believed. Now, how strong was his faith? What did he believe? Did this cause him to receive eternal life? Well, notice what he adds. For as yet they didn't understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Now, what's that talking about? Well, one of the things that we all have to come to grip with is if I'm going to claim that I believe that this book is God's word, right, then I'm going to have to interact with people who are going, come on, man. It's just a book written by men. The Muslims have their book. The Jehovah's Witnesses, everybody's got their own religious book. What would make you think that the Bible is the word of God? And so sometimes Christianity is given the impression that to be a Christian, in spite of all the evidence, you just take off your brains and you go, I don't know, but I just believe it because mom says so and it gives me a quiver in my liver. As though there's no credible reason for an intelligent person to believe the scriptures. But one of the most convincing evidences for the authority and truth of the scriptures are this, that the Old Testament scriptures exist. Nobody debates that. The Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in the 40s. They date back way before the time of Christ. And in the Dead Sea Scrolls are all the Old Testament scriptures, hundreds of years before Jesus Christ. Nobody can go, oh, they wrote that after Jesus. And if you read the Old Testament, there's these very, very specific predictions about Christ. There's 300 of them. Like you're reading the book of Micah, and it says, Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. You're reading the book of Amos, it says, he'll ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. Book of Isaiah says, he'll be born of a virgin. 
And on Friday, if you were here, we looked at Isaiah 53. It clearly predicted that Christ would suffer for our sins. He would be crucified with thieves and, and he would be buried with rich men. So, so I want you to think about this. That statistically, what are the chances of predicting 300 things, getting them all right, and they're going to happen hundreds of years from now? Somebody came up with that probability and there was a whole lot of one, two, a whole lot of zeros, right? So when, if you make a decision to believe that this book is the word of God and that you're going to trust it and you're going to forsake whatever else anybody else says to follow the word of God, it's not like you're being a fool, right? It's not like there's no witness to the authority of scripture. But notice it says they didn't understand that he, the scripture said he must rise from the dead. The Old Testament predicted that Jesus would be raised from the dead on a number of occasions. Probably the most famous one, King David, when he wrote Psalm 16, he said, I was always beholding the Lord before me. And then he said this, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. David predicted the resurrection of Christ. And the Old Testament prophets affirmed that. And so, if you're going to believe that, that the Old Testament predicted that Christ would come and die and that he would rise again, can I tell you this? It also predicted that he would come to reign and set up his kingdom. So you see how the stakes kind of are building here? If I believe that this is the Bible and I believe that Jesus fulfilled the scriptures that he would die and rise again, but there's other scriptures that haven't been fulfilled that he's coming again. And if he is coming again, then I'd better figure out whether I'm ready to meet him. So, verse 10 says the disciples went to their home. Verse 11, but Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. Now, I don't know if she came back. Apparently she came back later. Did she come back by herself? But this woman loved Jesus. And, and, and I think if, if you get to know Jesus, you might find yourself coming to tears at times because you just realize what, a, what an awesome savior what an awesome lord jesus is so she loved him she she was grieving and she stooped and she looked into the tomb verse 12 says she beheld two angels in white sitting one at the head the other at the feet where the body of jesus had been lying and they said to her woman why are you weeping she said to them because they've taken away my lord i i don't know where they've laid him and when she had said this she turned around and she beheld jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Now, critics look at this and they go, seriously? That's a problem with this book. You know, how could you not know it was Jesus? She loved him. She'd spent hours with him, days with him, years with him. And he's standing right in front of her and he didn't know it was her. She didn't know it was him. And I go, yeah, but cut her a break. If you went to your brother's funeral and you came home and he's sitting in the living room, even though he resembles my brother, you know, you, you wouldn't just go, oh, yeah, hey, how you doing? Yeah, it was a beautiful spray at the funeral. You know, you would be like, what's going on, right? Plus, she's weeping. Plus, she probably wasn't staring at his features. She just saw a guy standing there. She didn't recognize him at first. And sometimes Jesus intentionally disguised himself. In Luke chapter 24, when he appeared to the two from Emmaus, he intentionally made sure they didn't recognize him. But you know, in reality, that's exactly what's going on today because there's millions of people prancing around on planet Earth and even though they hear about Jesus and they're told that he's Lord of all and they're told that he created them and they're told that he's coming again, they don't recognize him. 
And the sad thing is when he comes back, he's not going to recognize them either. But notice, supposing him to be the gardener, Jesus says, woman, why are you weeping? Verse 15. She says, are you the gardener? Hey, gardener, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. It's one little word. He just called her name, Mary, right? He didn't say, don't be silly, young lady. Remember, I cast a demon out. Just one word, Mary. So all he said was her name. And something happened just hearing her name from Jesus. She knew. Look, he said to her, Mary, verse 16. She turned and said in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. I think there's something to be seen in this. Earlier in the Gospel of John, Jesus compared himself to a shepherd. He said, I'm a good shepherd and I lay down my life for the sheep. And the sheep are his people. But then he said this about his people. He said, my sheep hear my voice and they know me and they follow me and I give them eternal life. And I remember reading years ago, this, I, I thought this was kind of cool. Back then, at night, shepherds would often in Palestine put their sheep into a sheep pen, which was a walled pen to protect the sheep because wolves, thieves, bears, so, so they would have these sheep pens, but they were, they were public domain. They were sort of like motel sixes for sheep. So you didn't just have your own private pen right? So often, numerous shepherds would all bring their sheep to the same pen, and they would just herd them all in there together at night, and then they would close the sheep gate, right? And you're like, great idea, right? But then in the morning, now we got chaos. Hey, that's not your sheep, that's my sheep. Hey, that's not, how are we going to separate these sheep? Well, this is an interesting thing about sheep, It doesn't take sheep long to recognize their shepherd's voice. So according to historical records, the sheep would just come to the sheep gate, and he I don't know if he would have his little call here, fuzzy, or whatever he would say, hey, sheep. But only his sheep would come walking out, and the rest of them unfazed. And I want you to think about that. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. You go, where are you going with this? Well, let me ask you a question. You want to know if you're one of his sheep? When you hear the word of God, what goes on in your heart? Do you sort of go, something tells me that this is true. There's something that says this Jesus is speaking to me. Jesus becomes personal. He's calling my name. He's saying, Tom. Every once in a while, this will just visibly display itself in dramatic ways. Probably about five or six years ago, I was preaching at a youth, youth outing here in the church downstairs. A bunch of, bunch of teenagers had come as visitors. And when I got done the message, I was preaching from the Gospel of John. This little boy comes up, just a small little lad, and probably maybe 14 years old. He says, Mr., can I talk to you? He's standing right in front of all the other kids. He says... I've never been to church in my whole life. He says, but I've always wanted to come. He said, but my mom would never bring me. He says, this is the first time I've ever been here. I always wanted to learn about God and Jesus. 
Now, what compelled this kid to say this? This is what he said. He goes, but mister, can I tell you something? When you started reading those words from the Bible and I heard the words of Jesus, he said, I knew they were true. I knew it. And then he said something very, very interesting. He looks around at all the other kids who'd heard it a million times like water on a duck's back, blah, blah. And he goes, I don't know what these here kids believe, but I believe that this is the truth. And he's weeping, right? And he spent the next hour talking to one of our youth leaders. And his mom came to me that later that night. She goes, I don't know what you did to my boy, but you really got through to him. I'm like, sis, I didn't do anything to your boy. God did something in his heart. And so maybe you're sort of one of those French people. Oh, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I go to church. If you're one of his sheep, when you hear the word of the Lord, you believe it. And then Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. See, what, what, what thrills me about Easter is how many people come to church. What saddens me about the Sunday after his Easter is how many people don't come back. See, to be a Christ follower isn't to show up a couple times a year. It's to believe and then to follow him because you love him. So, Mary's touched. But then Jesus says to her, now listen, stop clinging to me. Stop clinging to me. Jesus, Jesus, you're going, does Jesus have one of those social phobias? You know, you're a little too, too close. You know, get out of my grill a little bit. Now, I think there's something much deeper here. Because in the same chapter, later on, Jesus says to Thomas, come over here, touch me. So it's not like Jesus got creeped out if someone was touching her. But, but there's something going on here when Jesus says, stop clinging to me. Right? He says, here's why I want you to stop clinging to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father. What are we, where are we going with this? Jesus dies on a Friday. He rises on a Sunday. He's out and, out and about, and Mary grabs him. He goes, hey, wait, I haven't ascended to the Father. What is that talking about? Well, there's a lot of discussion about that, but I think what, what we have going on here is something that really comes out of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God revealed to us that sin has devastating consequences, that when you break God's laws, thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not steal, that when you break God's laws, there's devastating consequences. God will not leave the guilty unpunished. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, and it would be very fair for God to just put everybody in hell because of their sins. But being a merciful God, he's not willing for men to perish. So he instituted a way that people could have their sins covered, and that was through a priesthood, not the Roman priesthood, but the Old Testament Jewish sacrificial system. And, and the head of that system was called the high priest. And he was the mediator. He stood between God and man. And here's sinful man over here. And so God told them once a year, the Jewish people call it Yom Kippur, they would offer a sacrifice. And the Bible said without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. But then what the high priest would do, the, the innocent victim, the animal, would shed its blood and die to pay the penalty of the guilty sinner. Then the high priest would take the blood and he would go behind this curtain called the, the veil into the Holy of Holies and he would place the blood onto this altar and he would present that blood before the Lord. And the Lord said, I have given you the blood upon the altar to cover your sins. 
But all along when God had instituted this idea of a mediator coming into his presence and offering the blood of an innocent victim so that the guilty could be forgiven, that was all simply a picture of what Christ would do. Because in the book of Hebrews chapter 9, it says this, Jesus did not enter into a holy place (coughs) made with hands, But Jesus went into the presence of God to appear for us. And not like the, whole pri- the high priest who offered year after year blood that was not his own. Otherwise, Jesus would have had to keep suffering. But now, once and for all, he was manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So I think what Jesus is saying to Mary is, don't touch me yet, because I'm going to go up into the presence of God, and I'm going to present myself as the final sacrifice, once for all, to pay for sinners who will come to me by faith. So this morning, if you're wondering, do I have a chance to get into heaven? Would God forgive me? The answer is yes, but not because we deserve it. But the Bible says in 1 John, I write these things so you don't sin, but if you do sin, we have an advocate with God the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who satisfied God's wrath and paid for our sins. So when you come before God, you don't go, God. You go, oh God, because of Jesus and because of his sacrifice, I believe that Christ is my high priest and that he's appeared before God to bring his blood. And on that basis, would you pardon my sin? What a wonderful truth that Jesus is at God's right hand and he has presented his sacrifice so that we could be forgiven. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He then says to her, now I want you, verse 7, go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my father and your father, my God and your God. There's something very personal here. See, Jesus always was the beloved son of the father. There was never a time when God said, you know, I'm lonely. Maybe I'll have a kid. Hey, let's call him Jesus. Jesus is eternal. Jesus is the eternal Son of God, and God the Father has always been the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. But because of the sacrifice of Christ, Jesus goes, he's now not just my Father, he's your Father. Now, that's profound when you think about it, right? For some people, it's really hard to think of God as a Father because you just didn't have a good dad. In fact, I've heard some sad and terrible stories of things that dads have done to their kids. And so... For God to say, hey, I want to be your father. For some of you, you're like, eh, no, I'll, I'll pass on that. But you got to go around whatever your earthly father was like and say, the God of the Bible, to have him as your father is awesome. No one will ever love you like this God who's your father. No one will ever protect you like this God who's your father. Right? It's natural for children when they need something to go to their father. And Jesus says, how much more will your heavenly father give good things to his children? It's a wonderful privilege because of Jesus to say, he's not just your father, Jesus, now he's my father. And he loves me and he protects me and he disciplines me and he answers my prayers. So Mary Magdalene, verse 18, came announcing to the disciples, I've seen the Lord. And this is what he said to her. And thus, Easter Sunday morning, comes to a close. So then what? Well, I I can tell you this, they did not go home for a ham dinner, okay? But John says, well, let me tell you about Easter Sunday evening. 
Verse 19. When therefore it was evening on that day, the same day, a lot of people get excited about the morning. Don't forget what happened that night. That same day, the first day of the week, when the doors were shut. Now that word has the idea of being barred or bolted or locked. They were, they were secured for fear of the Jews. Now think about this. These disciples all fled because they were crucifying Jesus and they're thinking to themselves, they're coming for us next. They're coming for us next. Lock the door, man. They're coming for us next. Now look what the text says. They're up there. It's Sunday night. And Jesus came and stood in their midst, right? Now what's he doing? You know, is, is, is John having some punch and then Jesus goes, hey, pardon me, mind if... Hey, wait... I don't know what happened here, right? A lot of people get all excited about this. Jesus can walk through walls. This is so cool. When we go to heaven, we'll walk. I don't think the point is that, in fact, don't even try that now. It's just not a good idea. People get all bent out of shape. Well, we have extraterrestrial bodies, you know, and we'll walk through walls. I don't think that's the point. I will say this. We need to get out of our mind the idea that when we are with God in the future that we're going to be floating around like angels. You're not. The Bible teaches that eternal life will consist of being resurrected from the dead and having a real body with flesh and bones like Jesus and living on the new heavens and the new earth. So when people go, oh, I can't wait to go to heaven and float around. You're not going to go to heaven and float around forever. You and I are going to be resurrected if you're a Christ follower and have a real body. But you're like, will it be able to walk through walls? I don't know. And I'm not sure that's the point here. But what is profound is that at any time over those next 40 days, Jesus could just show up, you know, you're standing in line, and all of a sudden, Jesus is there. That's a cool thought. But you know, we go, wouldn't that be neat? And the answer is, it is neat, and he still does this. In fact, I learned something really cool this week from one of D.A. Carson's comments. I knew that the early church used to say, Maranatha, which means, O Lord, come. And I thought that they just were talking about the return of Christ. But Carson says that Christians, based on this story of Jesus standing in their midst, when they would get together and gather, they would say, Maranatha, O Lord, come. They were inviting the presence of the risen Christ to their assembly. I like that. Because that's exactly what's supposed to happen every Sunday when we gather. Right? Jesus Christ says, where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm in the midst of them. Jesus in Revelation, he says, I walk among the churches and so it's really, it's thrilling, but it's a little bit terrifying to think that when we get together, it's not just a, a, a time to hang out and talk about sports and the weather, but we meet with the risen Christ. And the Holy Spirit mediates to us the presence of Christ so that Jesus is very real. Matter of fact, Paul said once in the New Testament, he said, if believers are prophesying and an unbeliever comes in, he'll say, surely God is in the midst of them. And I think the most thrilling thing that I could hear is for someone to say, hey, this is my first time here. But it was evident to me that Christ was in your midst. And so Jesus stood there and he said to the disciples, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. And the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. But then I want you to notice that he gives them a commission. They're standing around on Sunday night, and he says, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. What? I want you to think with me. Jesus Christ one day got up off his throne, stepped across the stars, 
humbled himself and came down to be born of the Virgin Mary, to take on humanity. He's still fully God, but he limits the use of his deity to serve us, to humble himself and to die on a cross. Why? Jesus said why. The Father sent me not to condemn the world, but that the world through me would be saved. So why did God send Jesus? The Father sent him to save sinners from hell, to bring hope to lost people, to, to free the prisoner. Jesus said, if you come to me and you believe in me, you'll be free indeed. Jesus came on a mission to reach people. But he's not here anymore. He says, the Father sent me and now I'm sending you. And that's not just for them folks back then. That's for us. We have been commissioned by Christ to reach people. And you're like, does this mean, Pastor, I have to go down to the train station and pass out tracks? No. Did you know that 80% of people that come to Christ come through friends and family members? The people that are in your sphere, your coworkers, your neighbors, your family members, they're the people that Christ is saying, I send you. And you're like, if you knew my people, it's a little different. Or I, I can't handle this. That's just not me. Jesus doesn't commission us without empowering us. As soon as he says, I'm sending you, he then says this. Verse 22. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. That's really important. Just think about this. Christ is taking us and he's saying, I'm forgiving you and I'm changing you into my disciple and then I'm going to send you back to your, your sphere, but I'm going to send you back with the Holy Spirit. Now there's a lot of discussion. Well, wait, if they receive the Spirit right now, why were they still so scared for the next 40 days? And if they receive the Spirit right now, what happened at Pentecost? I like what Calvin says. Calvin goes, maybe it was just a sprinkling, right? This is just a little... A little something to tie you over. Here, take a couple of these until the, until the whole thing comes at Pentecost. But the point is, and this is significant, if you're a Christian, this is a great truth. We have received the Holy Spirit, and that's a big deal, right? Don't miss that. I think so many of us live as though the Holy Spirit didn't even exist. A.W. Tozer once said this. He said the Holy Spirit could leave the church in America. It'd probably take them a couple months before they even noticed See, God gave us the Spirit for some wonderful reasons. Let me just share a couple. Number one, the whole point of getting saved is not to continue on and be the same sorry sinner. It's to experience transformation. Paul says the deeds of the flesh are evident, lust and immorality and drunkenness and anger, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. So he says this, learn to walk by the Spirit and you won't carry out the desires of the flesh. So one of the things that God's working in the lives of us followers is learning to pray and depend on the Holy Spirit to change us, to make us a little bit nicer, a little more loving, less lustful, less angry, more self-controlled. That's a gift that God gives us in the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit also comes to enable us to witness. Jesus says, you shall receive power when my Spirit comes upon you. And so if you go, oh, Pastor, I'm so afraid, just pray for the Holy Spirit's power and you'll be surprised. You'll start speaking up. Did I just say that? And you'll realize that's the Holy Spirit at work in your life. The Holy Spirit's in us to guide us into the truth because Satan's always trying to mislead us. And John says, you've received the Spirit so that he might teach you. But I'll tell you what I think the, 
the best part about having the Holy Spirit is. You might disagree. But Jesus said this, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. Because I'm going to go away, and he says, and then I'm going to send my spirit. And he says, I'm going to disclose myself to you. And when he comes, Jesus says, the spirit will not speak of his own, for he shall glorify me. And what I think Jesus meant by that is simply this, that that if Jesus in any way becomes real to you, that's the Holy Spirit's work. He manifests to you the reality that Jesus lives and that you have a relationship with him and that even though you can't see him, you fall in love with him and you sense the very presence of Christ and that is sweet and intimate. In fact, J.I. Packer came up with a beautiful illustration of this. He said, imagine riding by a beautiful church on a snowy night, little white church, silent night, it's Christmas Eve, and he says, you see this beautiful white church on this snowy night, and the reason you see the church is because there's landscape lights that are, that are illuminating the church, right? But no one rides by and he goes, man, those are beautiful lights, I wonder if they were 220 luminance, right? You don't even notice the lights because the, that's not their role to get you to focus on them. Well, that's what the Holy Spirit does. We've received the Holy Spirit, and you know what he's doing? He's glorifying Christ. He's opening our hearts and minds so that when we, we rehearse the gospel story, it becomes fresh again to us, and we love him anew, and we sense his presence And we're enabled to say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Hope springs up within us. My Lord Jesus is coming again. And so praise God that Jesus Christ has given us the Spirit. But then in his commission, he says to the disciples, if you forgive the sins of any, verse 23, they're forgiven. If you retain them, they're retained. Again, there's a lot of discussion about this. What I don't think it means is that Jesus gives authority to humans to forgive sin. You may go to a church where, you know, the minister says to you, you're forgiven. And you always kind of go away going, how do I know? The Bible says no man can forgive sins but God only. And so I think what he's simply doing is he's affirming to them that they have the authority to pronounce forgiveness on those who have met the biblical requirements for forgiveness, which are very clear. If you want your sins to be forgiven, you repent. Right? You're willing to admit you sinned and turn from them, and you believe. You believe that Christ paid it all. And so on the basis of the word of God, I want to say that to everyone here. Do you want your sins forgiven? Then come to Jesus, admit that you've sinned, be willing to turn from that, and believe that he died and rose again. And on that basis, your sins are forgiven. This week, I met a very, very precious, devout man. We talked about church and And so I said to him, I just want to ask you a question. Very educated man. I said, if God were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? I said, don't answer that yet. Think about it, because if you went to court, you'd think before you spoke to the judge. He goes, I already know the answer. I said, really, what would you say? He goes, I know what I would say. He shouldn't let me into heaven. I don't deserve to go to heaven. And I said, really? I said, that's fascinating. I said, you know, I ask people this all the time. You know, I said, what most of them say is, he'll let me in, I'm a good person. I said, Jesus told a story to one man, and he said, you know, sir, you're not far from the kingdom of God. But the saddest thing was, then I said this, I said, so do you think you'll go in? He goes, no, I don't think so. And he said, frankly, 
no one can know anyway. And I said, ooh, that's where, that's where I want to challenge you to rethink about that. The Bible says these things have been written to you so that if you believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you may know that you have eternal life. And that's a big difference because when you know, that's life-changing. So I want to read a couple more verses and then drive this home. Thomas comes back into the room. Verse 24, Thomas, one of the 12 called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. Now, where was he? On a Duncan run? We don't know where he was. I don't know. People make a big deal. See, this is what happens when you get away from hanging out with other Christians. The Bible doesn't say why he wasn't there, but he wasn't there. The other disciples, therefore, were saying to him, we've seen the Lord. Now, imagine telling 10 of your friends, nine of your friends, you're all a bunch of liars. He did not. Did too. Did not. In fact, unless I see his hands, the imprint of his nails, put my finger, I'm not going to believe. And after eight days, again, his disciples were inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors were shut. He stood in their midst, said, peace to you. And he looks over at Thomas and he says, hey, Tom, come here a minute. Reach here your finger. See my hands. Reach here and put it in my side and stop being unbelieving. Matter of fact, this could be translated, stop being an unbeliever. Be a believer. Let me fast forward from those words. Can I just say that to you this morning? If you've been kind of on the fence, I don't know whether this stuff is for real. Listen to what Jesus said. Don't be an unbeliever any longer. Become a believer. It makes a difference. And ask yourself this. If I did this morning decide that I'm going to be a believer, what difference would that make? Now look what Thomas did. He falls down. He, he says to Jesus, my Lord and my God. What did he just say? He just called Jesus Lord and God. To call Jesus Lord is to, is to submit to his authority to say, Jesus, I'm your follower. And to call him God is to believe that he's the resurrected divine son of God. And I'll never forget when I became a new Christian. Remember the old veteran stadium down in Philadelphia? Because God's still saving Thomases today. I'm riding by, if you remember, it was the old, the old sign. It was this huge tower, and it had a three-sided billboard on it, electronic, right? It was all, you know, beer commercials flashing across on it. In big, bold letters, this is what it said. Jesus, my Lord and my God, I love you. And my mind starts racing. Who in the world put that up? I'm picturing some really wealthy guy who didn't know Jesus, and then one day had a Thomas experience and was so excited, he wants to tell everybody in Philadelphia, Jesus, my Lord and my God, I love you. But notice what Jesus says to him. He says, Thomas, because you've seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who don't see and yet believe. When I was growing up, I had a next door neighbor. His name was KC. He was born the day after me. So he always kind of looked up to me because I had a little more experience. You know, I've been, been here a little longer. I was the wiser one. So when I became a Christian, he says to me, you know, Tom, he says, that's good for you because you need a crutch. I said, no, I don't need Jesus as a crutch. I need him as a stretcher. I'll freely admit I need him and I love him and I believe in him now. Years later, Casey called me up. He said, Tom, married now going through all these troubles, he goes, something's missing in my life. 
And I said, I know, it's Jesus. I've been telling you that for years. He goes, well, let's just say this. If it is Jesus, he's going to have to convince me. This is what he said. Apart from this book, he's going to have to convince me apart from this book. And I said to him, I want you to think about what you just said. What would he have to do to convince you? I said, do you need a near-death experience? To this day, he's still not a believer. And maybe that's kind of where you are. You're like, if he comes down here, maybe I'll follow him. Jesus says, blessed are they who do not see and yet believe. Because look at verse 31. Believing, you have life in his name. Let me ask you this morning. Do you believe? Oh, yeah, Pastor, I, I, I always believed there was a Jesus. No, no, no. I'm talking about believing if there's a Jesus. Do you believe that Christ is the Son of God who died on the cross, and when he was on that cross, he said, it's finished. He paid for your sins. <clears throat> Do you believe he rose up from the dead, and he's at the right hand of God, and he's the only way to heaven? Do you believe that he wants to save you? Do you hear him calling your voice this morning? And are you willing like Thomas, to say, my Lord and my God, I want to follow you. I want to confess you. God's speaking to hearts this morning. I believe that, and I trust that like Thomas, you'll make that decision. So Christians, number one, this morning I want to encourage you. Well, actually, this afternoon. So make yourself comfortable. We're going to be here. No, I'm just kidding. We're almost done. Relax. So <clears throat> number one, you and I always can rehearse and rejoice in the resurrection of Christ right? Don't just tuck him back in his Easter basket till next year. The resurrection's reality. We rejoice that our sins are forgiven, that there's hope beyond the grave, that nothing can separate us from his love, and he's coming again. So rejoice today. Christ is risen, and that matters. My sins are paid for, and therefore his peace is with me. But secondly, don't just rejoice in the resurrection. Remember his commission, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. What's that going to look like? You say, well, Pastor, first of all, if I start talking to people about Jesus, they'll be shocked. Probably so. And maybe you're still in your old grave clothes. Because once you become a Christian, the Bible says, lay aside those old habits. Put on the new man in Christ. But remember this, your commission is empowered by the Holy Spirit. So whatever's keeping you in the grave, Christ wants you to live for him, and he'll help you. And it's so exciting, because this church is growing by leaps and bounds, not because we have a big sign, but because people are loving and following Christ. And don't let Satan convince you that you can't have an influence. God doesn't need anybody's ability, just surrender and availability, and the Holy Spirit is at work. So be praying if you want to come to this church, be a part of this church, get plugged in. If you're a believer, get baptized. Follow him. And let's pray that God will continue to expand our influence. Not for us, but that's what we're here for. As the Father has sent me, so sent you. <clears throat> and then finally, either make your confession today. Determine that you are going to confess Christ and follow him from this day forth. Or, if you are a Christian, hold on to that confession. Some of you haven't been here for a while. Some of you haven't been with Jesus for a while. The Bible says, hold fast your confession until the end. Don't shrink back to destruction. 
If you have made your claim that you are a believer, then live that way. And if you've wandered from the Lord, he always is there to welcome you back. So this morning, may the Holy Spirit enable us to walk with Jesus, knowing that he's coming again. We're going to close this morning. I'm going to ask Jan and David to come. It's a really interesting song. We, we, we sung it on, on Good Friday. It's a great story behind this. There's a lady up in Canada one day. Her, her pastor said to her, I want you to sing Leonard Cohen's song, Hallelujah. Hallelujah. She says, I went home and I read the words of that song, and she goes, I'm not singing that. And I went and I read the background of, of that song, and Leonard Cohen, poor fellow, was a mixed-up man. But I can tell you this. He didn't mean anything significant in that song. He was just a, a blind man searching for a way. So this lady says, I went home and I, I took that song, Hallelujah, and, and I rewrote the words to tell the story of Christ. And she says, I sang it in church one day, and people were so blessed. Every time I sang it, they're like, you got to make a CD. And she says, I can't make a CD. It's Leonard Cohen's song. But she wrote to Leonard Cohen's people, and they signed over the rights of the music. And she rewrote the same song, Hallelujah. Our kids are running around singing, hallelujah, I have no clue what they're singing. But the Holy Spirit, as we sing this song, I want you to think of these words. I just believe God was moving in this woman's heart when she wrote this. But I believe that the Spirit of God's going to do just what we talked about this morning. As we sing about Christ, the Holy Spirit's going to make these words real to you. And so as we're singing, the chorus is hallelujah. So if you don't know it, the words are hallelujah, okay? So Yana will do the lines. Dave will play, and we're going to sing along, hallelujah. And then in the final stanza, we're going to stand together as we celebrate the resurrection. And if you would like to confess your faith, last week we had some 10, 12 people just come and said, I want to stand with you, Pastor Tom, to confess my faith. You come and stand with me if you'd like to say, I want to follow Christ. doesn't save you, but it's a great way to publicly identify with Christ. But let's worship Christ as Yana leads us in this song. A crown of thorns placed on his head He knew that he would soon be dead He said, did you forget me, Father, did you? They nailed him to a wooden cross Soon all the world would feel the loss Of Christ the King before his hallelujah He hung his head and prepared to die Then lifted his face up to the sky Said, I am coming home now, Father, to you. A reed which held his final sip was surely lifted to his lips. He drank his last and gave his soul to glory. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah.
soldier who had used the sword to pierce the body of our Lord said, truly, this is Jesus Christ, our Savior. He looked with fear upon his sword, then turned to face his Christ and Lord, fell to his knees, crying, hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. From his head the thorny crown And wrapped him in a linen gown And laid him down to rest inside the tomb The holes in his hands and his feet and side Now in our hearts we know he died To save us from ourselves Oh, hallelujah Hallelujah Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. That's the Jesus, stay seated for a moment. If that's the Jesus you believe in, you'll get your turn. If that's the Jesus you believe in, the Jesus you love, and you've never confessed him before men, come and stand with me and say, you know what? I'm unashamed to confess Christ is my Lord. If you've never done that before, it doesn't get you to heaven, but it'll be good for your soul to identify yourself with Christ. And then when we come to the chorus, we'll all stand together and sing hallelujah. So it's coming. Just remember the words. Days went by and then they came to move the stone, to bless the slain with oil and spice anointing, hallelujah. But as they went to move the stone, they saw that they were not alone, but Jesus Christ has risen, hallelujah. Apostle Peter said it this way, though we have not seen him, we love him. And if that song doesn't move you to love Jesus, you're dead. But he says, come. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for Christ, our Lord and our God, our only hope. Jesus, we do love you. 
we do believe in you. Thank you for dying and rising again. Thank you that you're coming again. Continue to heal the broken hearts. Continue to forgive the sins of the guilty. Continue to build this church by the power of your Holy Spirit. And Father, I pray that you will send us forth today with the blessing of the peace of Christ as we rejoice this Easter Sunday that our Lord is risen and coming again. Lord, thank you for being with us today, for manifesting your presence to us. And as we go our way, may we all be sure of this, that if we're a believer, that Christ is with us always, even to the end of the age. Thank you, Lord. And all of God's people said, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week. One day when heaven was filled with his praises One day when sin was as black as could be Jesus came forth to be born of a virgin He dwelt among men, my example is he Living he loved me Dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified freely forever. One day, he's